Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is proudly presented by Valantic. Valantic is a technology agnostic service provider for the e-commerce industry that helps you to find the right solution for the job. With over 70% coverage of the available e-commerce technologies, the chances are very good that Valantic will be able to support with the expertise of more than 600 colleagues in a goal-oriented way. In this way, we help you finding the technology and implement it successfully in accordance with the commercial, organizational and technological specifications. To find out more, visit valantic.com slash podcast. That's V-A-L-A-N-T-I-C dot com slash podcast. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today with me is Ilya Grigorik, a guy I know for, for years and also chased for years to have him in the podcast. He founded a company called PostRank, sold it to Google, is one of the key initiators of Core Web Vitals, led the Make the Web Faster team at Google. And a year ago, um, when we think, uh, when I think I, I got him for the podcast, he actually started at Shopify as a principal engineer. And yeah, from my perspective, it's uh, it's a very interesting journey he did there coming from the CTO track to rather the individual contributor track and uh, now really contributing a lot and in a very prominent company. I'm, I'm so glad to have you here, Ilya. Did I forget anything about your journey? Thanks, Toby. A long-time listener. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. No, I, th I think that, that sums that up uh, pretty well. Um, Maybe one small correction, which is I did not lead the Make the Web Fast team, but I was a member of the Make the Web Fast team at Google. And that was a, a really fun, uh, kind of eclectic group of engineers working on uh, exactly as what it sounds like, trying to figure out anything and everything that could make the internet faster. And I think one um, interesting aspect is also your blog, igvita.com. Um, I don't know if, do you actively blog or do you do that every once in a while? I mean, I remember a time when you had so many articles um, on, on Ruby and, and machine learning and so on. That was the time when you, when you caught my attention. Uh, do you still do that? I haven't publicly, unfortunately. Uh, I've continued to write. I, I think through writing. Um, that that is something that I've learned a long time ago. Um, I think through code, I think through writing. Um, but uh, lately, uh, as I've been working at Google and and Shopify, mo most of it has been directed internally, less so externally. But that's something I'm hoping to change uh, in 2022. Okay, great. Um, you have to tell us more, but uh, maybe we start with like my uh, most beloved question. What is your nerd path? How did you get into computing? How did you get into writing? What, what is your story? Uh, let, let, let's see. I, I think unlike maybe many of your other guests, I was actually not that interested in programming growing up. Um, I do recall a moment or a couple where uh, my parents were trying to entice me into it. Um, you know, 
sat me down in front of a computer. Here's how to program. My, my Both of my parents were technical. And I quickly lost interest. But then I remember this fla- flashball moment. It's probably like 95, 96. And at the time, I was living in Belarus with, with my family. I was still pretty young. Um, it, it was a school expedition to a local library uh, to go check out this thing called the internet. <laughs> and they passed around a phone book where you looked around uh, for, for different uh, URLs and then you type it in and then you spend 10 minutes waiting um, for, for something to load. I don't even remember what it was loading, but there was this like, it, it, for some reason it left an impression on me because I remember it's just like, wow, I'm typing something in to like request or fetch something from uh, St. Petersburg. I don't even remember what, what it was, um, but there's just like some palpable ma- magic there or like I'm getting a package from St. Petersburg in like 10 minutes. And that left an impression, uh, but kind of didn't go anywhere. Uh, it was, and it was only kind of years later where um, my family moved to Canada and all of a sudden I found myself uh, talking to a friend who built an angel fire website. And I was like, oh, I remember one of those. Like I remember this internet thing <laughs> and signing up for angel fire and starting to experiment. And uh, there's this really funny moment where like, I know nothing about HTML at that point or how to program. Uh, but I guess through just looking at uh, what's, provided on the page, I figure out that like, if I put a, you know, a, a center tag and type something in, in the middle, like it centers the content, the, 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 the blink tag. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then it was just a blink tag. And it was like, I, I kid you not. This was one of those like, oh my God moments, because I remember pressing save and it was actually centered. And was like, I just jump out of my chair, run, run over to get my parents. I'm like, look. And of course they're looking at this page like, okay, <laughs> what, what, what's going on? Uh, you, you, you centered some text. Uh, but that really kind of kicked off my fascination uh, with the internet, and I've been down that rabbit hole ever since. And maybe actually just one um, additional funny anecdote um, that I think about occasionally. I got into building these Angel Fire, Angel Fire websites, and as, as you just said, it was uh, overloaded with blink tags and all kinds of GIFs and, and all that sort of jazz. And at the time, I didn't know anything about web performance, obviously. Um, the best thing I had... Uh, at my disposal was MS Paint. So I would compose these like very complicated uh, menus and graphics and everything in MS Paint. I would of course save them as bitmaps, which are like multi-megabyte things. And this is back in the internet of you know 56K. It they wouldn't fit on Angel Fire because I had I think they had a limit of like two megabytes or something. So I had like 15 different accounts on Angel Fire just to like save my bitmaps just to store your images <laughs> <laughs> and, and and then i would of course build the page which was i don't even know how large it was it was probably like 50 megabytes if not 100 and yeah that was, that was my site and i was very proud of it and i think maybe subconsciously ever since i've been paying for my sins by working on my performance interesting and and like back to your story i mean how did you end up in the Silicon Valley then, how did you, I mean, obviously move over from, from Belarus? What, what, what is the story behind that? So my, my family, at the time I was only 13, and my family moved to Canada. So I, I came along for the ride. And then that was, uh, in retrospect, um, a very nice gift that my, my parents gave me. Um, I studied in uh, Waterloo, uh, Canada, uh, did my computer science degree, and uh, couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do growing up. Um, so I decided to do a master's degree and then and that never happened because over that summer I had a, a kind of a, a personal quest or question that I wanted to explore, which is 
uh, this is around 2007, what would a page rank built in 2007 look like? And just to put that into context, the difference here is a decade. So uh, foundation of Google was built on PageRank, which is effectively, let's look at the link graph and use that as a proxy for um, quality of content, right? If content is interlinked, these are effectively signals, like thumbs up between odd different authors for like, this is worth the reading. So if that was 1997, that was the only thing that was available. What, what's different than 2007? Well, in 2007, we have this explosion of uh, what we called at the time Web2. It's, you know, the digs, the reddits, the common threads, the blogs. So all of a sudden you have ability to engage with content and not just consume it and engage in different platforms. And all of that, all of that activity is another form of social signals about quality or, or at least some, some definition of quality of content, right? So my question was, if you could aggregate all that in addition to the links, could you build something more interesting or better, right? And at least in one respect, because the information starts to move so 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 much faster, uh, like ability to gather activity on uh, with a piece of content is much faster than linking to that content. Could we build a better filtering? So mm. that that became kind of a, first a, a, an experiment, then a product, and then a company uh, that became PostRank. Uh, that was eventually, as, as you mentioned, acquired by Google. Um, and that's that's what led me to the West Coast and uh, the rest is history. And if you look at the news world today, um, don't you every once in a while think, okay, the, the idea was actually good um, and uh, we, we need a way to also fight fake news um, that uh, like somehow would, would have fit well to that idea? I, th I think so. It's it's actually a really interesting space of graph analysis, right? It, you have to figure out that there's so many different aspects that you can account for. And we built some of them at, at PostRank. We were iterating on this for uh, four years, but we probably could have spent another 40. Um, you could think, you could look at things like how much engagement is there? Uh, what type of engagement is more valuable? Uh, then you get into but certain individuals, once you know who is interacting with the content, have a certain weight, right? Like if I see that Toby is commenting on a, uh, let's say an open source project that is far more valuable, like that's a higher quality signal um, than, uh, you know, some average Joe uh, Twitter account sharing a link to it. How do I count for that? Um, and then uh, also looking at re-engagement rates uh, and all the rest. So it, it's, kind of, it's a really interesting fractal problem that I think a lot of folks are still, a lot of really smart folks are, are thinking about and sorting out the, you know, the good from the bad is definitely one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And um, were you able to also um, work on this idea when you joined Google or how, how did that evolve? Yeah, yeah. So we joined Google in 2011, which is right around the time when Google's going all in on social. Uh, this is the heyday of let's uh, go launch Google plus and, and, and figure all that out. So uh, at PostRank, we spent four years figuring out all the ways you shouldn't be doing social. <laughs> so we, we came into uh, Google to accelerate some of that work. Uh, we worked on Google plus, we worked on Google analytics, uh, helping people understand how do you actually do social attribution? Like if you're doing marketing campaigns um, for a long time, uh, marketing and social, uh, to, for some companies still to this day, unfortunately, is uh, kind of undirected 
hey, my competitor is spending X amount, hence I must spend X amount, right? And, and you can be much more precise about uh, your ad budgets if you actually know where and how to seed content, you can be much more effective. So, but you need tools for that, you need analytics. So uh, yeah, we were able to apply a lot of the learnings um, that we developed at PostRank and transfer them to Google in, in a different context, of course. So we integrated some functionality into Google Analytics. Um, and that was really interesting, but by the way, we went from a small startup uh, we were running at fairly large scale because we've actually built effectively a, a small scale search in, search uh, search engine at PostRank. We were crawling the internet. We were crawling all the social uh, sites for, to get the engagement. Uh, but then you come into Google and especially Google Analytics, uh, which is quite literally running on half the internet, uh, and you're straight into the crucible of like release management performance scale that you've never seen before. It's several orders of magnitude, more complicated and more interesting. So that was a very steep learning curve. And um, actually, I believe you had uh, Shagnik uh, recently from... I just wanted to ask you if, if you if you actually met there. Yeah, yeah. We actually worked quite closely with, with Shagnik when I, when I joined. So that was, and I think he spoke well to the like really interesting time um, because... Google Analytics being at the scale that it operates was often on the bleeding edge of how do you actually make this work because nobody's built a system that works at this scale. Yeah. Um, so and and that is both true of technology and organizationally. So that was a a really interesting and steep learning curve for myself and I think the rest of the team, both as a technology and like as a technologist and a, as a leader. And um, as a leader, was that also the time when you? Um, decided to rather go for the on the, on the IC, rather continue on the IC track, or and and become an individual contributor. Um, or or was there a moment when you when you thought, okay, I I, I stick to hacking. I want to be the best in this. Um, or, or how was how was your your personal uh, journey there? Yeah, um, I spent about a, a year or year and a half. Uh, working with the teams, integrating the product. I was actually really proud that we were one of the uh, perhaps rare startups that actually launched, relaunched the product uh, in less than a year after being acquired. A lot, a lot of products go, you know, to, to get sunset. Um, so we, we delivered value pretty quickly and um, that was great. I was really enjoying it. But at the same time, was, Google is this amazing technical playground. There's so many interesting being, interesting things being worked on. Um, so in, you know, during nights, I would spend my time just deep diving into design documents, wikis, and all the other things um, at Google. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the company is it's, it's open culture. Everything was there for you to read. People were open to having conversations. And I took advantage of that and talked to a lot of people. Um, and along the way, uh, kind of as I was digging into the infrastructure part of it, um, I discovered this group, Make the Web Fast, which was this new kind of eclectic uh, group of folks who, that initially was actually started by um, by Sergey, who asked uh, a couple of engineers that he knew to investigate or, or brainstorm for how we could make the internet faster. And that kind of ballooned into this almost like a Park Labs um, incubation group, uh, which had folks from... Um, hardware, from protocol design, from browser developers, and uh, just brainstorming for like, what could we do? And that that just fascinated me. I, I uh, decided to uh, 
take a left turn and, and go from kind of managing and growing the team and building the product into, hey, this is an area that I just feel passionate about. Um, you know, one of the things we did at PostRank by necessity is effectively rebuilt our entire HTTP stack. Like we built HTTP clients, we built HTTP servers, we built all the protocol layers. Um, and uh, that what that group was doing spoke to me at, at kind of a very deep level. Uh, it had some folks that I was really excited to learn from. Um, so I decided to, to, to make that pivot and say, hey, I'm going to go deep into IC land and see what kind of value can I contribute on, on that particular project. Okay, interesting. Um, and, and, and what was the, well, if you, if you look at the journey of the Make, make the Web Fast team, um, what, what, what like the, were like the, the, the most important um, deliverables that, that came out there? Is it core Web Vitals or what was, what was uh, the, the, the outcome? That's a good question. I, I think, you know, in, in retrospect, I've, I've not worked in many research labs, but I think it was a really good example of a well-executed research lab. Um, and I say that because th th there's a number of products that I can trace lineage back to make the web fast uh, as, as incubations or as ideas. And we'll get back to them in a second. But also, we just invalidated a lot of things. So um, some examples I can give you are, if you maybe you remember Google Instant Search, this is like 2012, uh, where um, you, this was like shocking to many people. You could you could start typing and you get autofill, but then you also uh, press the button and the page is just there. And the technology under the hood was well, we had Chrome at the time, so we could uh, predict what is the most likely page that you're gonna enter, um, or um, by the time you finish. Uh, typing your URL, we could preload it in the background. Kind of, we, we would literally hide a tab, right, in Chrome. Start loading the page, and then when you hit enter to confirm if we had high probability, we just surface the page, and it was just pure magic for a lot of folks, right? So um, that's a really good example of make the fast. It's kind of like hiding that latency. Like the, there was no magic there in terms of making the internet go fast, but it was more about predicting what you're going to do. So that's one example. But there's a number of others. Uh, we spent the a lot of time thinking about the rising tide of mobile and what does that mean for latency. So quite literally, like putting up antennas and, and figuring out, trying to figure out, like how does this whole thing work? Um, that eventually led to Google Fi. Uh, for those that, that are not in uh, United States, that's an overlay network provided by Google. You can sign up to basically get your mobile service, five uh, five G and all all the rest. Uh, there is a number of other products like PageSpeed um, asking questions like th there's a lot of automatable web performance optimization work that folks have to do like image optimization. Could we just deliver that as a service? Like if, could, you just, could you just develop a plugin for Apache or Nginx that would just do it for you? So that, that was PageSpeed. Uh, there was the optimization proxy like could be run that as a service in instead of asking the developers to put it on their service. What, what if we routed traffic through a Google proxy to optimize all of this work? Because Which is essentially a CDN, right? Um, like an optimizing CDN? Yeah, yeah. And most every browser now has this capability. This is like, it's usually marketed as a data saver, right? This kind of, there's two aspects to it. Um, one is reducing the amount of bandwidth, which is really important for a lot of people because bandwidth is still, was and still very expensive in many places. But then there was also optimizing performance. Those two things are linked, but they're not exactly the same. 
So most browsers today will offer some sort of like data saver capability, which is effectively that. It's it's routing you through some um, trusted proxy, which crunches down images, you know, applies gzip to the resources that were not gzip um, and it ends up saving like somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of bytes on the wire which for some people is a night and day difference in terms of their experience okay and then you actually wrote a book about it right yeah yeah so i, I wrote high performance browser networking um as when i was <clears throat> working in that group and that was a classic example of me learning and thinking through writing you know i did not get into it uh, I did not start to write it because I knew all the answers. I started to write because I knew I had to figure out the answers. And for me, writing is how it comes together. Like the the ability to put something concisely on paper helps identify all the gaps in your knowledge. Like you, you read a lot, right? And you think you understand it. Then you try to condense it into a, a short thing that you can present to your coworker. And you realize all the gaps. Um, and then the next step is, well, if you, if you also then try to implement it, uh, then you realize all the things that you thought you understood, but completely underappreciated. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was uh, high performance browser networking. It's, uh, it was published in two or tw 2013. So it's almost approaching a decade, uh, but it, it's actually aged quite well. Uh, it, it's, it's still a very popular book. Um, and I think it, it just speaks to the fundamentals of latency and bandwidth and understanding how the protocols work like tcp evolves but not that fast right hcp evolves but not that fast and at the time we were working on hcp2 that's another good example of uh, things we were working on make the web fast it was speedy at the time if you recall which then became hcp2 and now it's of course quick which is hcp2 over udp and what was interesting actually just a, a brief aside was even back then, like 20, uh, 2012, 2013, for the folks working in the space at Google, it was clear that we needed to like leapfrog to UTP to really unlock all of the capabilities. But we also understood that like that would be too much of a thing to take on. So like first, let's do HTTP2, which is rebuild HTTP uh, as a binary protocol on top of TCP. And then once we get there, uh, we'll get to moving over to UTP, which is now quick. Uh, but yeah, yeah, fun journey. Okay, and if you if you're looking at the at the web today, um, also with the learnings from from your book and also all the all the ideas from your book, what is, what is still what what could could folks do still do better? Um, like if you if you could give like three um, key learnings to to CDOs out there, what where to start? What is what is underestimated these days? What what to optimize? Mm, that's a good question. Um, three things. Well, I think one I touched on already, which is understanding fundamentals of bandwidth and latency. Uh, just getting everyone on your team to kind of really uh, grok the differences between the two. Um, second would be, and I actually don't get much into this in in my book, but I think as an industry, we should spend more time thinking about this. Is when we think about latency, there is the kind of the, the hard latency figures. And then, and then there are the soft figures, which are mapping to per, uh, perceived latency. So you can design your product in certain ways that will make it appear that it behaves faster or responds faster. 
It also helps answer some of the questions around what is fast enough, right? There are different classes of problems. Like if you're building an RPC service and, and you need a, a certain SLA millisecond response time, like, okay, that's, that's what you're building, right? You're building a high frequency trading API. Okay. But if you're building a web service, which is presenting data to the user, you have a lot of tools at your disposal for how to present. Um, like when you put a spinner, it matters, right? Um, a fun anecdote, a couple of maybe fun anecdotes on that. Um, this is early 2010, 2011. Um, I remember talking with the blogger team. Uh, the blogger team built... Um, kind of a new front end, a SBA-like front end, where you could spin up a blog. And they made it so fast that you just click next and it's created. And it actually threw off a lot of consumers at that point, a lot of users, because they thought something was broken. We were used to, at the time, everyone was conditioned to waiting uh, for a couple of minutes or like at least seconds, right, for something to happen. So they thought like the feedback was coming in as like something's not working right or people were seeing high abandonment. So after doing some research, the team actually just added a spinner. Like it, they literally slowed down the process. They <laughs> added a spinner for three seconds. That's like creating your blog, done. And all of a sudden, like the whole funnel just got a whole lot better. And like it, this is a really good example of where you have to think about the wetware that's consuming the experience, right? And what it expects. So when you're building a game, you have to really center yourself around the like 60 FPS and what is perceived um, in that context versus if you're building a, a web application, like you probably don't need 60 frames per second, but there are certain other expectations that need to be met, like response latency. And how do you work around that? Like pre-rendering that we were talking about before is a really good example of just anticipating uh, what the user is going to do because oftentimes, like we're actually pretty slow, right? Like between us expressing our intent and and like confirming it, there's at least a couple hundred milliseconds, which is what pre-rendering was really leaning on to say, look, you, you typed in the URL, you're about to hit the, the return key on your keyboard, but it takes you a hundred milliseconds to get to the return. Why don't I just start fetching it, right? And by that time, I already like, establish the TCP connection, maybe even finish the TLS negotiation and I can start re receiving bytes. Like that's, that's a lot of latency that you can just hide. And this has nothing to do with like how fast your database works. So that would be maybe number two is just understanding that perceptual uh, latency. And the last one is uh, understanding mobile networks. I think this is still very much in a uh, black art. So it's a lot of folks. Um, I spend, I spent an entire chapter uh, and a lot of, time researching how mobile networks work. Um, I, I recall uh, a stack of books accumulating on my desk at Google and even some of my coworkers giving me kind of shifty eye of like, he, he may have gone off the deep end here because I'm, you know, I'm reading the, the manuals for all the different uh, network types. Uh, but it was clear to me at the time um, that building applications for mobile networks has a lot of unintuitive behaviors uh, that you can only understand if you understand how the mobile network operates. And um, I'll give you another example. This is, I think this was 2014, um, early versions of Android. Uh, for some reason, for some unknown reason, um, a section of users, specifically on T-Mobile, 
was having a really slow experience with uh, autocomplete on Android. So this is the, like you had the little Google bar on Android. And as you type, um, it, it's supposed to give you uh, predictions for, for what you want to search. But it's just really slow on T-Mobile and specifically on T-Mobile. And we couldn't figure out for the life of us what was happening. Um, and I came into this project a little bit late, or not a little bit late, I came at the end. I wasn't aware that the, they were trying to debug this problem. So they spent months trying to understand it. And then um, I was having lunch with some of the folks that were working on it. And at the time I was researching mobile networks, um, went away, started thinking about it. And I had this hypothesis that um, one of the interesting properties of mobile networks is your radio is your one of the most expensive um, parts to operate in terms of energy use. And if you're building a mobile phone, energy is the name of the game. You don't want your battery training, right? So other than keeping your screen on, uh, your, your radio consumes a lot of energy. So there's a lot of tricks that mobile networks apply to preserve um, or conserve energy by using low energy states um, and, not, and other tricks uh, to optimize that. So the, the reason that that's all relevant is um, one of the optimizations is like your phone has to wake up every once in a while to, to uh, tickle APIs, right? To say like, do I have more mail? Do I have more something? And one of the optimizations is unless you cross a certain threshold of number of bytes, we're going to keep you in a very low bandwidth channel because if it's just sitting in your pocket, who cares if the bandwidth is, you know, 50 kilobits, like you'll get the answer um, eventually. And what was happening with uh, T-Mobile was they tweaked the parameters of their specific network um, to to a level where and and, and the Android um, autocomplete team actually optimized their protocol in such a way that they just crossed paths where the autocomplete was flying right under the limit of this uh, low low bandwidth threshold, and so they were effectively getting fifty kilobits in an interactive session all the time. And so the answer was, well, uh, make it more inefficient. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, let's just pad 50 bytes to every request that we make. And all of a sudden, everything got super fast. Right? And it's like, wow. Um, Talk talk about, yeah, exactly. Crazy, right? But like, how do you debug that? How do you understand that? And this is just one example. Like another, another example would be if you're building an audio streaming application, is it more effective to, or efficient to trickle the bytes because you don't want to waste bandwidth? Or should you actually download it in one shot because the trickling bytes, it turns out to be super expensive in terms of battery use. In most cases, if you're building a mobile application, application it's better to do a one-shot download because your application will literally drain the battery's home. So there's all of these kind of interesting, um, unintuitive trade-offs that you have to make, right? Knowing how the, the mobile network operates. And I don't think that knowledge is still um, widely known or understood. Uh, it, we just kind of treat mobile as it, it's yet another network. And it's like, it's not. It's actually, it has very interesting behaviors that are worth digging into. And I think it's particular as a kind of a CTO and as an uh, technical leader who can help direct some of that thinking for the team. Okay. And um, looking back, like core web vitals um, were 
advertised as, as, as being or becoming very, very, very important um, for, for your Google ranking as well. And that didn't, that didn't really hit the world as hard as, 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 as we all thought, right? Um, is there still like from your perspective, um, as you're not no longer with Google these days, um, is there more to, to expect in that area? Or do you think like Google is now happy with the web being as fast as it is now? Um, and, and this is not, not let me ask, the world harder. Let, let me ask you a question. Do you feel like the internet is fast enough and good enough for you, for you as a user? Sometimes <laughs> it depends. Yeah. It depends. The, the, therein is your answer. So I, I think the answer is no. Um, I think there's, there's still a lot of um, focus and thinking on how we can make the internet better, but maybe just can, as a, as a brief history here, Google always cared about performance for a number of reasons. Like it, a, it's just better user experience. B uh, we had clear data that, the better the user experience on the web broadly, not just with Google, the more people use the internet, the more people use the internet, the more they use Google <laughs> and the flywheel continues, right? So if we can, that was the reason for existence for these groups like make the web fast. Like there's there a very direct correlation there. And uh, Google accounted for web performance for a long time in its ranking and, and in, in other mechanisms. But the question is how do you actually measure and what you're measuring? So for longest time, um, you did not, we did not have access to really good, reliable user perceived data, right? You, you can run, you can run lab tests, but as you know, and every listener of this podcast knows like a lab test in the real world production performance profile can be very, very different, right? Because in a lab test, you make certain assumptions about speed and type of device and all the rest. And then you throw it out into the real world and you realize, oh my God, I did, I did not know I have this cohort of users on this, like either ancient hardware or these interesting networks that like really make everything much more complicated. So in, if, if you rewind, let's say five years, um, you know, Google was factoring uh, performance into ranking, but it was looking at the tails primarily of like really atrocious experience than saying like one place to start is for us to identify obviously really bad experiences and not at least not promote them as high or at least or, or give other equal relevance uh, content higher placement because it's just better user experience, right? But that is a, sl a slightly different formulation from asking the question of what does a really great experience look like, right? Can we promote the really good stuff? And this is where Corvo Vitals um, is actually a massive step forward. Um, and it's based on a lot of the work that I was doing uh, with W3C and Make to a Fast, which is trying to answer the question of, first of all, fast is, has this property of, I kind of know it when I see it, but if you ask me what I'm measuring, um, that's hard, right? So it can, it's really hard, yeah. Right, so what are those metrics, first of all? What, like, what are the key metrics that we want to track? And then can we actually measure them in the browser? And can every browser provide that as a, as a, as a standard uh, API and metric such that we can all kind of steer the web in the right direction? So Core Vitals uh, is based on uh, web platform metrics like largest contentful paint, uh, input delay, and uh, cumulative layout shift that are measuring what we believe to be these um, high 
high level engagement metrics for like, is the content shifting on the screen? Because we know that that's not a good user experience. Um, how large is Contiful Paint is uh, a heuristic metric that basically says uh, the largest thing in your initial viewport is probably the most important. Not always, but on, on aggregate, it turns out to be a pretty good heuristic. And that accounts for things like, are you using a CDN um, for delivering it? Like oftentimes it'll be an image, right? A hero image on, on your page that's coming in. Is the image optimized? Are you using a CDN to serve it? Um, are you doing preloading or any of these tricks? So the core, core of a vitals uh, leverages the web platform primitives, A. Uh, two, uh, we built this um, system, which is a Chrome user experience report where uh, users can opt in to uh, share uh, anonymized performance data with Google. Um, and what that allows us to, to collect is this panel, a worldwide panel, not lab tests, but a worldwide panel of like users interacted with your site. We have anonymized data. Um, and based on that, we can build the entire distribution of how users are experiencing your site for each, each of these vitals and then use that in, in ranking and all the rest. And, and by the way, if you're, if you're not familiar with, with Crux, uh, which is Chrome User Experience Report, it's a public data set. So you can actually query it. It's available on BigQuery, um, and you can type in your origin and, and see how Chrome users are experiencing the web. And then Google Search is a consumer of that, you know, using that to uh, factor in, into um, the ranking and, and the relevance scoring and all the rest. So I, I, we launched it, I think, two years ago at this point. Um, it's interesting to, to hear you say that it did not have as, as much impact as um, as you think you did, um, that may be because the sites that you're engaging or working with are actually doing pretty okay on web vitals, right? Um, could be. Could be. Um, but we've certainly seen some meaningful shifts and improvements across the web. And a lot of the, a lot of the game here is not to like ratchet the requirements uh, to make everyone's life hard. It's to really kind of clamp the tails and ensure that we reduce variability and the unexpected kind of jankiness of the web for users as they browse it, right? We, we, want, we want an experience. Actually, it was, it was Sergey, uh, Sergey Brin that uh, at the very beginning of the Make the Web Fast gave this analogy, which actually stood the test of time quite well. Like when you open a magazine and you flip pages, you have a very predictable latency, right? Like you, you, don't, you don't flip a page and then like wait three seconds for like an image to drop. <laughs> or your page doesn't stick, at least most of the time, um, and, and, and like refuse to open. Um, how can we get the web to that sort of experience where it doesn't have to be maybe instant, but reliably, predictably, pretty good, right? Like, I know I can flip the page and within 100 milliseconds, I'll get something or every tap will be processed within 100 milliseconds and every page will be rendered in under one second. And then um, core web vitals or or web performance also turns into a, like a self fulfilling prophecy. Like um, if if you announce that you that you that you look at it, uh, then then people will invest into that, right? Uh, obviously, and that happened as well. So I think through that the web got much much faster actually through your work than or through the work of your team. Um, one thing I I every once in a while have to have to um, think about and, and um, 
am struggling with is actually the the the, the value of of um, new tech your technologies um, which are not request based like like single page web apps right I mean it's in a way you're you're entering the world of state um, in in a world where it, it 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 hasn't been how useful do you think such such inventions or or ideas are does it make sense to have state in the browser does it make sense to 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 have that that complexity i'm i'm really thinking about it a lot as it introduces so much complexity into the world of of developers and you even split teams in half and have one one backend team and one frontend team uh, that is like one thing like as an investment from a from a company perspective but how was that how did you were you just able to to measure that through uh, your your data set or was there was there a way th to theoretically analyze single page web apps and 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 how to index them mm -hmm. okay there's there's lots to unpack there um first of your question like that doesn't make sense to have state in the in the client i think the, the, that's an clear yes like should we have caches in the browser yes you don't you shouldn't have to refetch everything all the time um, should you use your cache as your primary data store like I think that's it's the next question. And I think in some cases, definitely yes. Um, taking this from a core of vitals uh, perspective, it's completely agnostic to how you architect your page, right? It can be request response from the server. It can be uh, kind of a single page app architecture. That part is not important. What is important is what is the user perceived experience of this? Do, do you have a consistently um, good interaction latency for when the user clicks. Like if you can deliver the right experience um, in the like in a sub, sub 100 millisecond response time on every click by doing client server response, sure, yeah, do that, <laughs> no, no problem. Um, in many cases, it makes a lot of sense to shift a lot of the processing to, to the client. So I think folks like to debate these architectures as like, which is the best and that misses the point because there's just trade-offs and the trade-offs depend on context of your application. So um, Alex Russell um, actually recently had uh, a short but really good um, post on the web performance calendar. Um, each year in December, there's a set of folks that get on this web performance calendar and just kind of write you know, their learnings and the rest. And I encourage folks to, to, look, to look up uh, his uh, post, which is um, a unified theory of web performance. <laughs> <laughs> which is a, it's a grand name, but, but I think he actually distills it quite well, which is what we're after is to reduce variability in response times for the user. And there's no silver bullets here. Uh, what matters is how you achieve that. Uh, so, so let's compare and contrast some applications. Like if you're building something like a Gmail where you know that there's a lot of interactions happening and the, and the expectations that the user has are uh, basically real-time editing Right, it makes a lot of sense to uh, optimize for on-device compute and, and and local architecture, where you're able to process a lot of the data without having to round trip to the to the server all the time. And that means that you might end up taking a trade-off, which is the first time that you open Gmail, it may take a while because it has to hydrate itself, has to pull down all that state, uh, but then. And, and that's what you get, right? You get like the, the loading bar in Gmail <laughs> when, when it loads. Uh, but then once it's booted up, like I have my Gmail open basically throughout the day, 
that cost is amortized. And what I get in return is uh, really fast and snappy response times that are just in my browser, which then in a the background sync to, uh, to the server. So there's, there's, no, uh, there's no silver bullet here. You really have to think about the trade-offs and how you're building your application and what your needs and, are. And also your use case, right? I mean, not everyone is building a webmailer. Um, yep. And, and even if, uh, like, uh, let's look at hey.com, right? It's, it's quite a responsive website without, uh, or web application w without the, 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 the complexity of a single page web app. Um, and, and it works in a similar way, right? Um, yeah. 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 So I, I don't think it's one, one or the other, right? Like we definitely need client side state and code. Um, please don't forget about the client and server architecture as well. So it's, it's really about understanding the needs of your users. Right. It, like let, let's let's forget about the architecture. Let's figure out what do we actually need to deliver as an experience to the user, and then work from that to figure out what is the right architecture. So um, that's a perfect time to look at uh, your your job at Shopify now. Um, <laughs> I think. I mean, you're in a way also. Um, I guess using a lot of your knowledge um, to 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 build something new, and I th I think you started like uh, you you told me before that you started as as an IC without knowing what what you're doing there or what you you'll be doing there. Are you making Shopify faster, or what? What is what are you doing there now? Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly an aspect of it. Um, as you said, I came into Shopify um, not knowing exactly what I'm going to focus on, having some theories, having uh, spent some time with Toby and, and others. Um, so I, I joined the, did you get the job through, through Twitter or, <laughs> um, I I've actually known Shopify and I've known Toby for a long time. Uh, Toby of course has a Ruby and rails background. So that's one connection also a Canadian entrepreneur, which is another connection. So we've kept in touch over the years. Um, and, uh, I, I decided that in, in 2021, it was, it was a good time to, To make a change, I really enjoyed my time at Google. It's an amazing playground, but Google also doesn't have a monopoly on all the interesting problems in the world. And commerce is just is this like really rapidly expanding, fascinating field. Shopify is building a platform for uh, entrepreneurs to, to enter into this world and kind of really transitioning from. Um, this high level product uh, that, that you can use to build a, a storefront into a platform for developers. And that felt like a really opportune time for me for me to come in and help shape some of that. So in particular, the thing that I've focused on in the last year has been this hydrogen and oxygen runtime. So for those who are not familiar, hydrogen is a new uh, React framework uh, for building online storefronts powered by Shopify. Uh, and what we're really, really leaning into uh, there and kind of maybe to preempt the question of like, really, why another React framework? <laughs> Is because you know, we looked around and, and what we saw was, uh, we, we thought it was insufficient for building commerce experiences that, that, are, that are the future. And, you know, having worked with a lot of merchants and talked to them and observed what they're, what they're trying to do, um, we saw that what they need is, in particular for larger merchants, and those, that's the type of merchant that wants to build these custom experiences, they have large catalogs, they have complicated business rules around discounts and campaigns and A-B testing and all the rest. And the existing tools don't really meet them where they need to. Now, you can certainly build really fast, statically, you know, pre-generated uh, pages that are served off the CDN edge. That's beautiful, but that only works for like a small segment of merchants that fit into that 
uh, into that mold. Like you have to have a, uh, I don't want to say unsophisticated, but a small set of requirements. Like how do you do A-B testing? How do you do um, updates? How do you do campaigns? How, how do you do dynamic pricing? How do you do localization? I'm not saying those things are impossible. They are, you know, but you can do anything you want with client-side states and, and enough JavaScript on your page. But how do you deliver it in a maintainable way that is also performant um, and, and a good user experience? That turns out to be hard, right? And some folks have solved this problem. Like there are some very large resourced companies um, that have dedicated teams that have built up entire infrastructure and frameworks for building, like de delivering these large commerce experiences. But as your average commerce developer, who does not have that advantage. If you just pick up React, where do you go? So we saw things like React server components that were announced by the React core team. And we thought that that was a really good foundational piece. Not quite ready yet, but we were there to help kind of prototype and develop it, which allows you to have this, uh, what effectively is like this actual true isomorphic experience of writing client and, and server-side JavaScript. And, and sharing state uh, between them. And really thinking to, about this problem through the lens of if we're here to solve the problem of building dynamic commerce experiences, right? We definitely need to leverage the edge, but we can't let go of the server to your point, right? Because so much of the complexity of commerce is server state. Um, it's your product inventory data, uh, availability, pricing, discounts, your carts, um, and, and all the rest, how do we marry those two? And how do we give you the client-side framework and the runtime to run it, right? First, you have to, first you build it, and then you actually have to run it in production. And that's where uh, historically a lot of the Shopify magic has been. Like when you come to Shopify and you, and you start your store, you never have to think about hosting. We just do it for you. So if you want to host a, a flash sale with um, millions of people converging on your site, that's fine. Like we can absorb that uh, as Shopify and and keep your site running. But if you're building a React app, what do you do? You go to like a CDN, uh, a Vercel, a Netlify. Now you're carrying pagers. You have to figure out that whole thing. Uh, so part of this was also just uh, working internally to figure out what is the magic that we've built at Shopify and how do we make it available to others? So if you have a JavaScript application instead of a Ruby application and a, and a liquid storefront, liquid powered storefront, what is that tool that we give you to allow you to just bring JavaScript to Shopify? And that's Oxygen, which is our V8-based runtime, effectively a worker runtime that runs and executes JavaScript with local access to data, um, high performance, uh, and all the rest. So that, does that mean that you effectively build like a, <clears throat> a headless um, Shopify <laughs> version or... Yeah, yeah. So I, this this is great. I, I love beating up on the word headless. This is such a terrible term. Um, headless is meaningless. What, what is headless commerce? It's like imagine you built a network of stores around the world, and then you, you and then you like shut off the front windows, close the doors, and now you're headless. Headless is not the point, right? The point is to be omni-channel, is to have many heads, right? And and this, maybe it's just worth rewinding briefly. Like where did that term come from? Uh, it was born in 2013, around that time, when everyone's going through this really painful mobile transition or transition to mobile. Everyone's realizing that, holy crap, so much traffic is coming from mobile that I can no longer just expect users to be happy with this like 
desktop application, a desktop design and optimized application running on my phone. We all remember that experience. Remember the pinch zoom to like navigate a website? It's actually shocking and amazing that we managed to transform the web to be mobile friendly. It was not at all obvious that uh, we would be able to do this. I remember at the time when it was Google, that was a major um, effort, um, like mobile first, right? And I remember seeing uh, like reels on CNN about the upcoming mobile getting because Google was going to launch an update to its ranking to like promote mobile optimized websites. Like it, it was, it was such a big deal. And now you all forgot about it. So during that transition, headless is born because people realized that like before, when you said commerce, it was synonymous with like, I have a database that serves a web app, like a desktop experience. But now I need multiple. I need a mobile and I need a, maybe even a mobile app and, and a desktop, right? So you had to like introduce this new layer, which is headless, like decouple the head, if you will, from the rest. Like this is the APIs and all the rest. And like that's headless commerce. But that's kind of meaningless, right? Shopify has been headless since time eternal. Like it had APIs. Uh, Shopify is one of the largest GraphQL providers. Uh, it is omnichannel. You can come in and install, you know, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, whatever. Like you, you can sell wherever you need. So it's not about being headless. Um, it's about being omnichannel. And then, uh, sorry, this is a long, long rant on your question of what, what is hydrogen. Um, hydrogen is how do you build a great mobile experience, dynamic uh, dynamic uh, personalized commerce experience on the web, you know, circa 2022. Sounds great. Sounds great. And um, how did you discover that, that, um, or how did you come to that idea? I mean, was it already planned when you joined or uh, is that something you discovered on the way together with Toby and, and, and uh, JML and the others? Well, uh, one of the benefits of Shopify, working at Shopify, is we get to work with millions of merchants, right? So they tell us. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to go looking. They, they, they tell us. And we saw it. We, we kept seeing it where um, there's a, a segment of merchants that have uh, grown up. Like there, There's actually two groups. I, I will bucket them into two groups. There is a small set of technically capable, technically minded like founders who are just, they, they, they want to own the code, right? And they're willing to invest a majority of Shopify uh, merchants are not technical. And that is a superpower of, of, of Shopify. It allows you to get on the web and start selling without you know, having to hire an engineering team. But at a certain point, you cross the scale where you're willing to experiment and innovate. Like if you're, uh, if you're selling sneakers, you may want to have a 3D experience to try on different sneakers, right? And like, okay, I can, at the scale, I can hire a team. Or you, you, you want to build a really cool configurator for your product. So you have that capacity and now you're reaching for the tools to figure out how do I do that? How do I build that on top of Shopify? Okay, Shopify, you gave me APIs. That's, that's good. <laughs> but is there more, right? Can I, um, how do I actually build this dynamic experience that works? And once I built it, yeah, you did a good job of running our like liquid powered, Ruby powered sh shop before, but now, now that I'm on JavaScript, I, I can't use that anymore. So do you have an answer for that? So we were seeing merchants struggling with that. So it was a known uh, pain point. And uh, when I joined the company last year, uh, it became one of the core missions uh, to dig in and figure out what we could do better. And that became hydrogen and oxygen. It's really like just just looking back in time. I mean, also with the time when you actually were, were starting as a Rubyist um, and, and potentially met Toby. 
it's it's really crazy to look back at that time, right? When Shopify was just like uh, an idea that dropped out of a, like someone building a snowboard store. <laughs> That's, and now it, in a way, uh, yeah, serves e-commerce um, and, and is, is, is head to head with, with Amazon. That's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it caught many people by surprise, including those at Shopify. <laughs> I can <laughs> and, imagine. Yeah. And I think it just, it, it just speaks to us consistently underestimating the size of commerce, commerce on the web, and this belief of like zero-sum games, right? Like co commerce is still in the early stages and expansion mode, right? This is not about fighting between platforms. This is about bringing commerce online and bringing the world online to do commerce. So um, Shopify is you know, the, the everywhere store for everyone. That's a lot of people. <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting problems to solve. Yeah. And still so many jumping over to the online world, right? Yeah. Um, so it's also like a lot of potential still. Um, but yeah, coming coming closer to the end, uh, as we, I mean, we could talk for hours and we're already like at almost an hour. Um, one one tool I also like to, to, to one, one question I also like to ask you, um, as you're rather technical or very technical, <laughs> um, is there any like recent tool discovery you made or any idea that you think is, is going to, 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 to change the world in the next months or, or years? Mm, a tool. Well, I, I think the, the first answer that comes to mind is it's actually not, not a tool that will probably change the world. I think it's, it's probably only applicable to a small segment, but Looking back in, in 2021, um, I've, I had a eclectic set of tools for managing my own process of like accumulating knowledge. I moved over to Rome, Rome Research. Uh, there's also LogSec and a few others. And that's, that kind of really finally fit me like a glove. Um, so if folks are not familiar, I definitely encourage you to, to experiment with that. It's just a really fascinating tool that allows you to combine knowledge, uh, link knowledge, and just build. Um, I spend a lot of time in Rome just curating my knowledge garden and my thinking. Uh, it, I found that it really helps me through that process of accumulating information, condensing it, and then actually um, writing. So I've been doing a lot of writing um, privately in there. That's interesting. Like that idea of, of also writing down almost everything you, you, you're thinking about um, and, and structuring your, your thoughts uh, better is, is yeah, uh, something that I think also um, in a way is partly influenced by Amazon, right? Don't they do that everywhere? And a lot of companies are, 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 are adopting that and a lot of individuals as well. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is like the, the six-page memo, uh, which is, I definitely think that's an underutilized skill. Like the, the art of effective meetings is a rare skill. <laughs> um, and uh, while I've never worked at Amazon, uh, but it seems to me like that would be a, a very effective way to get everyone on the same page, which is we tend to lean on, let's just talk through it as a crutch. And these sorts of meetings, these asynchronous meetings, don't optimize for quality of decision-making. Sometimes they optimize for velocity, of decision-making, but quality and velocity are two different things. You need both. 
right? But if you lean too heavily on the <clears throat> on the velocity, you don't end up doing the right things. And I and I believe, and I've like I've seen this time and time again, where if I sit down to to write down the thing that I want to discuss and like actually think about it for thirty minutes, by the end of the thirty minutes, I've probably answered eighty percent of it. <laughs> Half the time, I've realized that it's not a question I should be asking, um, and then I come much much better prepared. So yes, I do I do think that writing is, is a skill and communication broadly, right? Writing and communication are, are interlinked. Thanks a lot. Um, I still have a little surprise for you. Um, so your, your, your former colleague, uh, Shagnit, uh, Shagnit, I also had on the podcast a few, few months ago, um, actually told me about, um, a, a hidden Google analytics Easter egg, um, it's actually a feature that lets you travel back in time, um, like an unre unreleased version of the date picker um, in, in analytics. And we now have the chance to actually try that that hidden feature. He gave me access to that and to travel back in time to the year 2007 when you actually got started with PostRank as, as, a, as a CTO back then. Um, if you now had the chance to whisper something into into uh, young Ilya's ears, what what would you whisper your, into your your own ears? I love that question. Uh, I also have a superpower. I, I can I can introspect the past, I, and I've listened to your past podcast, so I need to anticipate this question. <laughs> and I say that because I, I thought about it, and, and I think I came down to I was trying to reduce it to the fewest number, but I came down with four. Uh, four tips that I would tell myself. And one is exactly what I just said earlier, which is read, write, and make, and use that pyramid, right? It's, it's, it's very important to read broadly, but make sure you take time to consolidate it and make it your own, which is writing. Uh, writing really helps elucidate all the things you don't understand or you thought you understand. And then actually take the time to make something. Like uh, just to make a concrete example, if you're technical, go read about DHCP2. Um, then try to write down a short presentation that you can give to your co colleague to like explain it. And then uh, go and try to build a very simple framer, right? That works with that binary protocol. And you'll, you quickly discover that each one of those stages, there's like a massive gap that you need to go through to, to really grok it. But once you do, it, it pays this really high dividend over the long term. So that'd be one. Um, second one would be, don't be afraid to keep asking why. I've benefited from a lot of really good mentors. Um, along the way, um, where they were willing to entertain and actually display that uh, as as a skill of like working with. Um, you know, I remember some meetings with like Jeff Dean or, and, and even meeting Ben Surf and like in in those discussions they were able they, they they were willing to like you would expect them to know all the things, and instead what they were really inquisitive about is just asking probing for like tell me why that is the case. Um, And that really um, left an impression on me and something I've tried to practice. And it, it, it's also another skill that I think uh, both as a leader and as kind of an individual uh, contributor, it pays a lot of dividends. Uh, third one would be work in open source. Um, I've benefited greatly from that. I think it's amazing training wheels. It forces you to learn communication, negotiation, also code, of course. Um, and it's the best resume you can get. Um, honestly, I've, I've benefited so much from my work in open source, just from meeting people um, and finding opportunities and, and learning lots. Um, go find a project, open a ticket, start contributing. And then the last one is um, something that kind of worried me for a while is don't be the best, uh, be the only. 
And, and what I mean by that is I've never considered myself to be the best engineer or the best salesperson or the best graphic designer or the best marketer, but I've learned enough about each one of those. And it turns out uh, that my superpower is being able to combine all of those things, right? As I think as, as a leader, as a CTO, um, you're often the bridge between different parts of organization. You have to learn the, the language of each one. And it's that ability to combine. And in a way, it's actually kind of the anti-fragile uh, strategy for your, for your career, right? Because by accumulating all these individual skills, you become the only person that is able to talk about HP2 uh, while being able to uh, give a presentation reasonably well uh, and also sell it in, in some context, right? So if you need to go sell page speed, like I, I'm your man because I, I can figure out how to like thread all those things to, together. And I, maybe I can train the sales team and all the rest. So I, that worried me for a long time because um, kind of growing up, I was maybe uncomfortable with that idea of like, but I'm not the best at something. And now I've, I've actually acknowledged that like, that's probably my my skill, which is, uh, being able to combine combine and thread all these things together. So uh, stack stack these skill sets uh, to build your own superpower. Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ilya. Um, so really a lot of interesting topics that you you tackled throughout your career. And um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to, to hear more and see more. Maybe <clears throat> we have the chance to actually physically meet uh, Whenever this is like uh, the, the the pandemic is over, I'll, I'll I'll travel over and visit you. So um, looking forward to that, and um, yeah, I'd I'd love to to to, to continue the discussion. Uh, maybe we we have the chance to 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 continue uh, at another time. So thanks a lot for for the discussion. Uh, great meeting you. Thanks, Ilya. Thanks, and likewise, really fun.